Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into our vast and extensive musical archives. Right, and it's a little shelf just out here. <laughs> it's just right there. We're three well, fits it's digital. Three, it's small. That's know? true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's ones and zeros. Well, and actually, there is a lot of stuff in that steel uh, file cabinet, and it's got a lot of stuff in it. And we've talked about this before. It's got reel to reel. It's got dat. Uh, oh, right. tapes. Digital it's got tape, yeah. right. It's got mini discs and it's got CDs. And then, of course, we have a lot of the recent stuff. What no digi- tracks? <laughs> <laughs> we do have a lot of stuff digitally from the last ten years or so. But the other stuff is right over there. Don't anybody budge it, move it, kick it, or set it on fire. Thank mm-hmm. you. Okay. All right. So today we've got a great lineup. We've got um, an early '70s interview with Paul Simon, and this is a cu- actually a couple of interviews combined into one. Right. And Paul is talking a lot about songwriting, and it's just terrific. And you know, are there very many songwriters better than Paul Simon? So we'll talk about that at great length in just a few minutes. We also have, I love this band, The Killers, and this is from 2006, promoting their second album, Sam's Town. So we're, that's about uh, 12 years ago when we uh, chatted with them. Is it that long ago now? Yes. Oh, yeah. And wow. they, they were a big deal when they broke out. And thankfully, they've had a recent comeback in the last six, eight months. They've had two right. big singles, including uh, I'm the Man, which is a Great, great song. song. So it's so great to hear them again. Also, a little-known guy, a guy who was well-known in the 70s, and he's got a lot of history. We're going to tell you all about him coming up. And a phenomenal interview with Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. Oh, my God, Christopher. This made me laugh, um, and, and I can't wait for you to play me some of these clips. And then finally, of course, we have The Wisdom of Dave. But first, Paul Simon. Tom? Yes? What do you say about an artist who has sold over 100 million records, has won 16 Grammys, is in the Songwriters Hall of Fame and in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Hmm. Well, in this case, you say goodbye. Hmm. Paul Simon has decided that his upcoming Homeward Bound tour will be his last. It kicks off in Vancouver on the 16th of May and wraps at London's Hyde Park July 15th with a little help from James Taylor and Bonnie Raitt. Wow, nice lineup. Did you ever see um, Paul Simon either solo or with Art Garfunkel? Yes, I've seen him a couple of times. I saw him just about maybe 10 years ago and the uh, opening for him was uh, Brian Wilson, by the way. Oh. Can you imagine that show? Wow. And it was good. It, it was It was very good, but it wasn't as good as the Graceland tour, I think 1987 at Maple one? Leaf Gardens. That was an exceptionally good oh, show. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I bet. Yeah, and I love uh, Paul Simon. Might be top three or four songwriters in my in my estimation. Yeah, I mean he is a mm. giant among songwriters. Well, not in stature, but in yeah, <laughs> in success. Um, I saw his first solo tour. It came to Massey Hall in Toronto, and something really weird happened. Okay. After the very first song. And you know, when there's a buildup, I mean, here's, this, here's an artist who's breaking away from being part of a famous group. Sure. He's doing his first solo tour. Yep. There's a lot of buildup. He's, he's got this beautiful backdrop that looks like a cityscape. He has the best session players that money can buy. Absolutely. He plays one song, and the PA dies. And it does not come back. Oh, no. And it does not come back. And he's just standing there on stage, and there's sort of all this, you know, looking around. There's roadies rushing in. Nothing. What does he do? He picks up an acoustic guitar. He walks downstage. And solo, 
He plays Homeward Bound. Oh, wow. And you could hear a pin drop. Wow. It was what, such a magical moment. That sounds like a great moment for sure. And then the PA came back. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. We have clips from a couple of interviews, uh, one around the time of the release of 1980's One Trick Pony, which is an album of soundtrack songs from a movie that he starred in. He was asked about the first single, Late in the Evening. Well, you know, all the songs that are on the One Trick Pony album really relate to the movie. So, uh, in a certain sense, they're, they're really enriched by the context of the movie. Uh, as it happens, uh, Late in the Evening... Uh, took off uh, by itself very very quickly, which is uh, a pleasant surprise for me. Uh, there's not much I can say about it. I recorded it, uh, oh, at least two years ago, as I, as I did most of the material, because I had to uh, record and write uh, the material as I was finishing up the screenplay. And uh, then uh, once that was done, then we, then we made the movie. So uh, most of the songs on the album were done in 1978 and uh, uh, 79. Oh man, I love that song. That is such mm-hmm. a great song. You know, Paul Simon has done so many different things and attacked so many different genres. Those horns and the and that guitar lick and first thing I was rem- I remember when you came into my life I said I'm going to get that girl no matter what I do <laughs> and uh, I went upside and went upstairs and smoked myself a J. Just great funny lines and great you lyrics. You do and, love your Paul oh, Simon, oh, don't you? Man, do not get me started. Yeah. <laughs> well, I already did. <laughs> sure That's have. what we're here for. For sure. Um, you know what? He also was interested in the movies and he'd appeared in Woody Allen's Annie Hall just a few years earlier. Has uh, the film industry been something that you've been long interested in? Uh, I have been interested in, in it, yes. And I have, you know, from time to time been involved in starting with The Graduate. Mm-hmm. And uh, a little bit with Shampoo and then Acting in Annie Hall. Well, actually, I should modify that. It's not the film industry so much that I'm interested in. It's uh, making a, making films and writing writing films that uh, that holds interest for me. It's just another facet of uh, of my uh, uh, creative life that I wanted to explore. I, I, I have no intention of leaving music, which is really my first love. Uh, you know, and I don't have any desires to be a, a movie star, but I'd like to make like make movies in the same way that I, I like to make albums. Paul Simon has been uh, kind of a restless songwriter as a solo artist, ranging through all kinds of styles. He talked about his influences, and some of them might surprise you. Who inspired you to get into the recording industry? Lots of, lots of people. Lots of different influences. The Everly Brothers had, a, of course, you know, a tremendous influence on uh, uh, Artie and me. Mm-hmm. Uh, as did Elvis Presley, doo-wop groups in the 50s, uh, in the 60s, uh, West Coast jazz guys, Miles Davis, that Brazilian, some of the Brazilian composers, Jobim, gospel quartets like the Swan Silvertones and the Dixie Hummingbirds had an effect upon me, uh, reggae music, Desmond Decker, uh, that... That stuff uh, caught my ear for a while, and I, and I listened to it. And you know, all popular music that you hear on the radio. I mean, it's just very hard to like pin one one source or even even a few sources because uh, you're always listening. And uh, you know, people when people ever ask, you know, you know, what are your roots? I mean, for most of the people of like our generations, 
the, the, there are no roots, you know, the roots are radio. Mm -hmm. But we hear, as we're growing up, and uh, you, you turn the dial and you hear lots of different things, and your ear gets caught by it all, so it's just all somehow blends into eventually become your own music. He spoke of future projects, including one that actually did come to pass many years later. The Broadway musical Cape Man is considered the least successful endeavor in a glittering career, but it was far outnumbered by the successes, let's be fair. Generally speaking, down the line, I'd like to write another uh, screenplay and do another movie. Uh, you know, generally speaking, I would, I would someday like to write a musical, a Broadway musical, but uh, I don't have a specific project. I, I, like to, I like to record another album relatively quickly here because there's been such a long delay between my last album and this due to the fact that I had to uh, complete work on the movie that I've really broken what had been a, a rhythm of putting out an album about once every 18 months, every two years. And I like to get back to that. To that. And there are some songs that I wrote that I never put into the movie because I didn't think they... Uh, they didn't serve the purpose that I wanted in the movie. I, the script could do it better. So maybe I'll, I'll do an album relatively quickly in the spring and then think about uh, whatever might be a larger project. Recently, um, Tom, I went to a show in Los Angeles at the Skirball Cultural Center dedicated to Paul Simon. It was a music geek's dream. I <laughs> wish you had been there because sure. it had, um, you know, glass cases with all the guitars that mm -hmm. he played at different points in his career. It had handwritten original song lyrics and little videos with him talking about where the songs came from. And he, there's a story that I don't know if you know this, but he said he came up with one of his most famous lyrics, Where Have You Gone, Joe DiMaggio, from um, Mrs. Robinson, only as a placeholder if you know what oh, I mean. okay, yeah. Where you sure. just put something in because it's the first thing that comes to your mind mm -hmm. and, you, and you sort of think, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll fix that later. I'll write the real lyric later. But as we know, that ended up being the real lyric. Wow. Mm -hmm. I also heard that he, he was going to call it Mrs. Roosevelt. But there was a character in the movie yes, called Mrs. I, Robinson. I mean, right. surely he had to adhere to he, that. Yes, for sure. And I think I think he had this Mr. Roosevelt thing long before Mike Nichols, uh, you oh. know, enlisted him him and Art to do the music for uh, for The Graduate. Right. Yeah. Now, I heard a story. You know me. I have to tell it. Uh -huh. And I have no idea whether it's true or not. But that Paul Simon likes to bounce a ball off the wall of his studio until he gets an idea to work on. Hmm. Now, he has said that he likes to write when he's driving, which makes sense to me because the left side of your brain is kind of fully occupied staying on the road, you know, sure. steering and watching for other cars and so on, while the creative side of the right brain just goes wild. Yeah. In a separate interview, Simon spoke about his writing. I don't write from inspiration. I write... I'm a, I'm, I'm a professional writer. You know, and uh, I, I don't sit down every day from nine to five and write but I have uh, patterns of writing and when I sit down I start to play and I start to sing whatever melody comes to my head and I sing whatever lyrics come into my head and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're interesting and sometimes they're not and really the 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 I find the hardest job of of writing songs is being an editor you have to throw out what doesn't really make it and say well this one line is good and I'll try and build off this line and this melody is good, or this is average. Uh, but, I mean, it's not like I'm, 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 not, I'm not inspired to write. All right, you're a hardcore fan. Tom, what's your favorite Paul Simon oh, song? Oh, Christopher, do not do this yeah, to me. Yeah, you only get one. No, no, sorry. 
Sorry, buddy. I'm taking five, okay? <laughs> oh, no, you're not. You're getting one. <laughs> Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Okay. From Graceland. Uh, Kodachrome. Yeah. Um, um, okay. Mother and Child Reunion. Mother and Child Reunion is great. Not, not one of not my all-time five? favorites. Okay. Oh, oh, uh, Something So Right. Beautiful song. Uh-huh. Um, I also like... You're running I, out. I'm not, I'm not huge on the, the whole song of 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, but right. I love lyrically... I love it. You know, she said, it pains me so to see you in such pain. I wish there was something I can do to make you smile again. And he said, oh, I appreciate that. But would you please explain about the 50 ways? Like, I love the <laughs> oh, cadence yeah. and oh, just yeah. the conversational nature and the way Paul Simon could write in a female voice that was really convincing. Yeah, he is an absolute master. Mm-hmm. And um, my choice is a song that not everybody knows. It's called American Tune. Oh, not America, not the all oh, gone yeah. to look for yeah. the American tune. Okay, and this song was based on a big, big hit from 1727 <laughs> <laughs> by Johann Sebastian Bach called Saint Matthew's Passion. Okay, and for what it's worth, that was based on a work by a German late Renaissance composer named Hans Leo Hassler. <laughs> I don't think we have any interviews from either of them in the vaults. No, no, not not, not but, that I know. But you know of. what? If you if you don't remember that song, please go back and listen to it. And what album is it from? There goes Ryman Simon. I will listen to it today. Please, it'll be your new favorite. <laughs> <laughs> this is famous lost words, and we're digging in. We're not going to the the deep dive isn't too deep this time. We're going back to October of two thousand and six. And we're talking about The Killers. Mm-hmm. Terrific band. Terrific band. And, you know, they did disappear for a few years, but they came back last year with one of my favorite songs of oh, the year. Oh, The Man, yeah. The Man. Oh. Monster single. It was. It was yeah. a monster single. And it was so good to hear them back and hear them being both rock and dance at the same time. That's a great song. If you don't know it, check it out, The Man by The Killers. Okay, so now let's go back to the time of their second album, Sam's Town, 2006, October, okay? And the band here is talking about how proud they are of the album, but then they kind of realize that their their new album could actually be a little bit better. Have a listen to this. We're writing quality songs. We could still be better. Um, I mean, last night I heard Betty Davis' eyes in a a sushi restaurant, and I was thinking, You know, people would probably consider that song a guilty pleasure, but I don't know if there's anything that good uh, as that song on our album. It's amazing. You know, there's still there's still levels to be reached of, you know, writing a song that no one's ever heard before. Isn't that funny? They hold up Betty Davis' eyes, <laughs> which, by the way, I agree with. I think is a phenomenal. It was a landmark track. Yes. You remember that sound that 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 yeah yes yes <laughs> i remember trying to copy that in a session we were yeah. like we got to do that many times that's so. right that's like the sound in uh, cars by uh, by gary newman da, 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 da. it's a similar kind of snap sound yeah. oh you disagree with me don't you no 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 i'm there i'm, I'm just thinking about it but her and kim Carnes' vocal was oh killer just on that fantastic song. just fantastic so so it's interesting to th- to think that that band the killers are still referencing a song that came a good you know 25 years earlier and that was, was written by jackie DeShannon. jackie DeShannon put a little love in your heart jackie DeShannon. okay so but so here's a band that two years earlier had a couple of big hits and they're back and they were so pleased when they came up with a single when we were young we felt like it was special that's the best way that I can describe because we had so much pressure on us. You know, we had this huge first album and we're sitting here trying to write a, a second album and, and the label's calling every day, you know, do you have anything, do you have anything? And 
we had some things that we really loved, and we had sent sent the demos over for them to hear, and they they were worried we didn't have anything that was heavy or or or, or fast enough because they're so worried about having another somebody told me or another Mr. Brightside, and you know this song came about, and I just know. I, we, I, I drove home that night and I had a copy because we, we, you know, we, we just re- made a quick recording of it and I listened to it and I knew, you know, that I didn't have to worry anymore. Okay, so Christopher, let's talk about, let's talk about how a band or an artist would be relieved when they finally record something they think is a worthy follow-up, right? You've been involved in the careers of a lot of artists and... There must be a relief when you record something when you think, okay, this could be it. This could be a worthy follow-up to Black Velvet by Alana, which you which you uh, you know wrote, and this could be this could be the song that we need to make us more than just a one-album wonder. In the case of the Killers, the expectation level is absurd, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of it you place on yourself, just as I'm sure they're inferring here. Um, and it's inevitable. There's no way around it. If you have sort of pride in your work and you're, you know, aspirational in what you do. Um, ultimately, though, can you ever live up to that expectation? I mean, c- you know, could Atlanta have had a bigger single than Black Velvet? I don't think so. Right. You know, right. And clearly yeah. didn't. Right. But I also remember the stigma of having a record that didn't sell as much was was ridiculous. She had an album that was three times platinum in Canada that was called A Failure. Oh, wow. Which one was that? Rocking Horse? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good album. It was a good album. Like, if she started there, instead of starting with the Alana Miles album, right? And... Uh, you know, it's it's so it's so unfair, and also the expectation that is then placed upon you, right? So that's that's kind of what the killers are talking about here. The expectation was on them; they feel the pressure, and they're relieved when they have that song, and even more relieved when it becomes a hit. You know, I talked to Cheryl Crow many years ago, and it was just after it was the time the album after Tuesday Night Music Club right. when All I Want to Do and Strong Enough were, yeah. were big hits, and I asked her, "Aren't weren't you relieved when this when this song?" hit i can't remember which song it was and she said to me no it didn't really matter to me and maybe in her maybe in her world it didn't but i'm certain that she must have been a little bit relieved when a change is going to come what's that song a change would do a change would do you good and uh soak up the sun and all those other songs if it makes you happy all those other songs kind of kept her career going because you know then you've got another good six months left in your career at least when you've got another big hit single well and hers was to some extent singles driven you mm-hmm. know, I mean, mm-hmm. she had a string of hits, yeah, and the expectation that goes with that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And she is still a great performer, oh. but you don't hear about her as much just simply because she's not on top forty radio. But with that history, she will always be able to tour and draw. Yes, for sure, absolutely right. You've got a catalog. You can play. You can draw a crowd. It might not be as big of a crowd, but you know you're probably touring with a smaller band, a more intimate group of people. You don't have to pay as many people. You can do, you know, maybe large clubs or smaller mm-hmm. halls, and and it's still it's manageable fin- on a financial level uh, to do that. So there you go. We talked about uh, the Killers. We talked about uh, Jackie DeShannon, Kim Carnes, and <laughs> Cheryl Crow. There you go. So here's someone who has a ton of history in the music business. Alan Parsons is known as a recording artist, but perhaps his biggest claim to fame was as a recording engineer on two of the most sonically adventurous albums of all time, Abbey Road by The Beatles and Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. 
He may not be a major player in rock, but his story is pretty interesting. So here he is. We're going to get him to tell the story himself. Here's Alan from the mid to late 70s, first talking about working with the Beatles on Abbey Road. Although Let It Be was the last album by the Beatles as a group to be released, it was Abbey Road that was the last to be recorded. Um, My involvement on the Abbey Road album was again as tape operator, assistant engineer, what have you. I noticed that during the making of the album, uh, you wouldn't often find all four Beatles there at once. It would just be Paul with George Martin or George Harrison with George Martin. Um, They'd each come in to do their individual parts of their own individual songs. So isn't that interesting? It was rare that all four Beatles would be in the studio at the same time. And I think we knew that about them. Yeah. I mean, it was there. I think by the time of the White Album... It was like a bunch of solo artists yeah, in some for, ways. for sure. Okay, and here's a cool story about recording the beginning of the song Time by Pink Floyd. Do you remember the one with all the clocks? Yes. When the band had been performing Time in concert, it uh, simply started with uh, Roger Waters playing the bass clicks, which eventually come out of the introduction that's on the record. But I came up with this idea for putting a load of clocks and timepieces which I'd recorded a few weeks previously in a in a local clock shop and um, the idea was that all the clocks would tick together uh, which would be virtually impossible to record under normal circumstances but with a multi-track tape we managed to sync them all up so that they ticked for a while and then all started chiming at the same time and then out of that came uh, the bass lick and then it went into the tune. Oh, I love that sound. Love that sound. Okay, so Pink Floyd records Dark Side of the Moon. It is massive, and it remains massive for years and years to come. It's still one of the biggest catalogs. Is it still catalogs. on the charts? I, I don't believe it is. it was on for like, what, like 15 years well, or it, something? it was, and I think what happened is they have like a classic chart now. Not right. classical, but classic chart. Right. And it's probably one of the bigger ones, along with Bad Out of Hell, which is still up there, believe it or not. Yeah. Oh, so... so what, how do you follow up Dark Side of the Moon? Okay, so here's a very bizarre story Alan Parsons telling us about how they wanted, how, how the band, Pink Floyd, wanted to follow up Dark Side of the Moon with an album based on a very idealistic principle, but it did not work at all. I thought it was a little strange at the time, after the phenomenal success of, of Dark Side of the Moon, that the Floyd came in to do another album, which was a complete departure from it. It was actually designed to be an album recorded totally without any musical instruments or any conventional musical instruments. And uh, we started making this this record with objects such as rubber bands and tin cans and blowing through bottles and rubbing fingers around wine glasses and things like this. But the whole thing was just so painstaking. (laughs) I mean, we we must have spent about a month in the studio, at least, and, and came out with two minutes of music. And everybody just said, you know... My brain's going, I can't possibly go on any further with this. So it's a great shame the thing was abandoned because it did have a, a potential to, to cause a complete revolution in recording. But, uh, you know, the, the effort involved in making it would have just been extraordinary. So can you believe that? So they wanted to make their next album with no musical instruments, just with sounds. Now... <laughs> they were they were too far because ahead they of, could right well because they were Pink Floyd and they thought we can we can do this we can pull it together we're creative and all that and what what the problem with that is that 
they didn't have the technology to be able to pull that off. Well, they didn't have samplers. That's right. right. So all they would have needed to do is wait a couple of decades and they could have done what they wanted to do. Wait for the fair light to arrive. That's right. So after that time, Alan Parsons then got into producing big time, starting with a Scottish band that was a one-hit wonder, but that hit was huge. It wasn't long before EMI came up with another act for me to produce for them. Uh, These were three guys from Scotland by the names of David Payton, Stuart Tosh and Billy Lyle. They teamed together with another Scot called Ian Benson and became known as Pilot. Uh, We made an album and thankfully again the, the single that was released from this album also scored very well and completely broke them wide open in America. Uh, the record reached number two, if I'm not mistaken. The song was called Magic. Oh, ho, ho, it's magic, you know. Never believe it's not so. Wow, that is a great song. I love that pop song. Of course you do. <laughs> I also told you I loved Afternoon Delight. Don't judge. Yes. No, Actually, good. judge all you want. That's part of the fun. Okay, so Alan also worked with Ambrosia on their early hits, and he worked with a guy that had a couple of pretty big songs in the 70s. We're talking about Al Stewart, who ah. we talked about a few episodes ago. Remember remember how he sounds oh, yes. exactly like the Pet Shop Boys? I know. And he explains how Alan made the suggestion to Al that completely changed Al's music. The most successful artist that I think I've been involved with as a producer is Al Stewart. But uh, while we were making Al's next album... Uh, I made a suggestion to use an old friend of mine, Phil Kenzie, to put a sax solo on the LP's title track. And Al said that he'd never heard a sax in his music before, but kind of went along with the idea. And the result was the song that virtually broke Al worldwide, The Year of the Cat. Great sax work. That's a great song and uh, some great information from Alan Parsons, the man behind many of those great songs. Okay, time now to focus in on a really big hit from the past. It's Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks. Now, I gotta admit, I wasn't a huge fan of this song. It was kind of a little bit uncool when I was growing up and when this song was a was a big hit, but I still admire yeah. the enormity, <laughs> right. the enormity of this hit. And I also absolutely love Terry Jacks talking about how this song came to be. And he originally wrote it for the Beach Boys, of all people. Al Jardine and I have been good friends for a while. He's one of the Beach Boys. This was a couple of years ago, and they hadn't had any hits for a while. At the time, uh, we were doing pretty well in the States, the Poppy family, where we had three big hits, um, Billy, and That's Where I Went Wrong, Where Evil Grows. So um, I'd been talking to Al, and he said, uh, would you be interested in uh, producing us? And I said, well, I don't know, you know, what would Brian think of it? Because, like, Brian Wilson's done all their productions, and he's, like, a great producer. And he says, well, we'll talk to the guys. So he talked to the guys, and he came back, and he said, uh, yeah, it'd be neat. You know, they'd like you to uh, produce a record for us. So I went home, and I thought about it for a while. Um, and this one song has been had been in the back of my mind for about 10 years. And I phoned down, and I says, I got the song for you, you know, and I played for them. They really liked it, and... Uh, we hired all the best musicians in L.A. for the session. I flew down, and we cut a great rhythm session. Carl Wilson did the singing on it. He's the guy who did for, you know, Good Vibrations and all that. And and we got the background vocals on, and everything was really groovy. And Brian wouldn't sing the high part because he didn't 
want to sing high anymore or something, so I had to put a trumpet on. And there was just some weird vibe things that started. I didn't feel that they wanted a hit that much. I, I was so enthused and so driving, and I wasn't getting that kind of reaction back. They weren't hungry enough. They've had so many hits. And uh, I never put the suite and never put the strings on or anything, and I just that was that. I've still got the tape at home. And so then that, that was strange because it could have been a hit for them. I'm glad the way the things worked out. So then I got home and Larry Evoy phoned me about, I don't know, a year later. And he says, uh, I wonder if you'd produce a record for me. This was with Edward Bear. And I says, I've got a song for you that you'd, you'd really sing the ass off of. You'd do a good job on it. So I said, I'm coming through Toronto next week. Meet me at the airport and we'll get together and I'll play this song. So I met him at the airport and he listened to it and he said, well... I kind of like it. He says, I don't know whether it fits me. I don't know whether it'd be a hit or not. You know, I don't know. So anyway, the song that I refused producing for him turned out to be the last song, which <laughs> was nice. And then uh, anyway, and the song that uh, he refused turned out to be Susan's in the Sun. And it was uh, just a really funny thing. Wow. Talk about a few roads not taken, huh? Crazy. That's a great story. I, I love know. that. And you're right. His enthusiasm was wonderful. That's right. And he sounds so Canadian in that clip. And I just love him. And uh, and, and good for good for him. And he became wealthy. And, and, and you know, it was a worldwide hit. I heard at one point that Seasons in the Sun sold 9 million copies. That is huge. Tom, what band has been going strong since 1975? has played over 2,000 shows and sold over 100 million records. Okay, I'm going to guess my favorite band of all time, Kiss, but I know they started in 72 or 73, so I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, whoever guessed Iron Maiden, raise your hands, please. Darn. Now, I was working at Much in the 80s heyday of metal, and it took many forms, from speed metal to industrial, hair metal, that being the frothiest incarnation. (laughs) Bands like Motley Crue, Rat, and Helix all had hit songs, and very colorful videos. So they crossed over into the mainstream for a while. Now, I saw one of the ultimate metal double bills of the time in November of 1984. It was Twisted Sister, Maple Leaf Gardens, opening for Iron Maiden on the World Slavery Tour. <laughs> now, this is where... I always talk like that when I'm talking about metal. I have to stop doing that. Uh, and this is where these bands really excelled. The sort of massive, over-the-top live shows that built incredible fan loyalty. Now, arguably, these two acts occupied very different ends of the form. You know, the sort of wacky buffoonery of Twisted Sister, um, handed down maybe by Kiss and Alice Cooper, and the darker sort of, you know, Dungeons and Dragons gothic style of Maiden, likely influenced by Judas Priest, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The lead singer of Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson, a very interesting man. Yeah. Truly a Renaissance man. A commercial airlines pilot, um, TV host, novelist, brewer. (laughs) He's also a very lively interview subject. And who knew? Seriously, I didn't really know much about Iron Maiden. I saw them live once, and uh, it was fine. And but I wasn't wasn't a big fan, so it was kind of cool to see them. But I had no idea this guy had so much personality. The only reason I didn't actually ever take vocal lessons as such, sort of official vocal lessons with a teacher, is because um, I feel that it cramps your um, your individual vocal style and prevents your personality coming out. But the real reason was I was scared stiff they'd tell me I couldn't sing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he was kind of the runner-up for the most interesting man in the world contest. <laughs> Based on his resume, anyway. Sure, sure. Anyway, um, 
He, here in this next clip, he talks about his vocal style and how he became a singer. The story of how I became a singer was I ended up I ended up in sort of one of these little front room bands that everybody has when they when they first sort of start out. You know, like two kids from the the, the place next door who've got electric guitars and play through transistor radios. You know, mm -hmm. and we're all sitting in the front room, and I'd got hold of a pair of bongos, like a couple of like little calfskin <laughs> bongos. Right. And we were we were playing. I think it was Let It Be because it was only, the only four chords I knew. <laughs> on bongos, right? yeah, on bongos. Well, I was just sort of, you know, I was just right. sort of sitting there, beating three kinds of hell out of these bongos, <laughs> obliterating their little transistor radio sort of guitar amplifiers and giving myself blisters. And uh, they told me to shut up because they're making such a racket and uh, do some singing. You know, I mean, can't you sing? Can't you do something musical instead of making that row? So I did, and from then on they hired a new bongo player, and I was a singer. <laughs> and that's how I started. That's how, it that's, that's how I started. started. I sort of went mumbling away and um, thought, well, it's cheaper than being a bongo player, you know, being a singer. You don't have to buy guitar strings, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you may have to buy something for your throat once in a while, and that's about it. Yeah, a couple of pints or something yeah, like that. So, but yeah. that's the fun bit, you know. <laughs> wow, I love this guy. What a great sense of humor. He was also quite amusing when telling of one hideous review he received for his vocal stylings. Who dubbed you the air raid siren? Um, it was this guy who wrote a letter in to, uh, to Melody Maker. And actually what it was, was he, I think he was, the, he was the only Iron Maiden fan in... It was the only letter that any music paper received saying uh, that they, they didn't like Iron Maiden's new singer. And, oh, my. Uh, all right. So, this, that, so they, they printed it as being the only one they'd received. And uh, it had a really sweet little photograph of me up on the top, which was nicer than to put that one in. Mm -hmm. And uh, then underneath it said, you know, yours disgusted of Luton or something. Um, <laughs> it was uh, going to the Iron Maiden show at the Rainbow um, was like seeing, it uh, was like hearing, uh, hearing your favourite tracks sung by, a, sung by a strangled parrot being mm. played, being minced through an air raid siren or oh. something. <laughs> so it was pretty derogatory. So yeah, but we, we, with, we, but it we, stuck, we, eh? we all kind of we all sort of liked it. I mean, um, so uh, it stuck. Oh, that's crazy! So what started as an insult, the air raid siren, became a moniker by which his yeah. fans know him now. Like that's so funny. Well, that's great that he just went. Okay, I'll make that part of the story. You know. <laughs> Okay, Christopher, this next clip is great because it tells a story about how they got the name for the album The Number of the Beast. That's at the end of the clip. But this clip starts by Bruce telling us about some really bizarre things that happened in the studio. The bass gear kept um, kept cracking up and we couldn't understand why. We had the guy who built it, the guy who designed it, and we he couldn't do anything. He rebuilt it all and brought it back and it's still going wrong and all kinds of rubbish like that. Where you'd never had any problems like that before? No, we'd done a whole world tour with no problems. It was stuck in the studio and it wouldn't wouldn't function. Uh, the 24-track machine in the studio blew up. <laughs> all the Dolby's... The Dolby's went... Well, no, it didn't actually, didn't actually blow up. It's just that it wouldn't record what we were mm -hmm. putting on it. We, we recorded... Uh, uh, a whole pile of drum tracks and when we came to play them back they sounded different and uh, we thought it was very strange so we changed the machine and it was all okay um, and then we discovered that the new machine was not compatible with the, the, the all the, the Dolby noise, noise reduction systems which mm -hmm. were actually playing a tune <laughs> through the uh, through the monitors we had like a close encounters sort of little chorus of, of Dolby units coming through the monitors, which took us two days to fix. Kind of with a mind of their own. 
Yeah, it took, that took us two days to fix. And uh, by the time we'd done all that, what with blizzards and snow and flu and everything else which was happening this winter in England, uh, we had a few delays on the album. Um, the 666 bill for the repair of the car is... Martin, Bur- Martin Birch, your producer, <coughs> had, yeah. a, had a wreck, and uh, yeah, his what, repair bill what, was exactly 666 pounds. Well, it was 666 right? pounds, 66 pence, if you can believe that. And <laughs> I that don't is, believe it, that, to tell that, you the that, truth. No, but. no that, is, that is not hype. That really is, you know, the, the, the honest truth. So, Tom, do you remember the PMRC, headed up by Tipper Gore, Al's wife? I sure do. They were the... Yeah, the Parents Music Resource Center. Mm -hmm. And um, people were very touchy about the lyrics in, you know, metal albums, rap albums, and anything else. Mm -hmm. And they cast a seriously disapproving eye on a lot of metal music in those days, actually listing what they called the Filthy (laughs) Fifteen. Their most egregious songs of the day, featuring Prince, Madonna, and... (laughs) <laughs> that purveyor of smut, Sheena Easton. Well, I get that because <laughs> I'm you sorry, know I shouldn't say it. it was a joke. <laughs> I, you know, I I get that because Sheena Easton did a Prince song called Sugar Walls, and boy, oh boy, it was. Well, that's yeah, yeah. that's that's the one that was on the Filthy Fifteen. Yes, and also Prince's song <laughs> Darling Nikki. Man, I wish I'd been on the Filthy Fifteen. <laughs> I I I give a lot for that opportunity. Yeah. Anyway, the list was mostly um, metal acts, people like The Crew, Priest, Sabbath, and others. Twisted Sister made the list, but Iron Maiden uh, were spared. Um, They still had to survive in an era of some scrutiny on their choice of themes, as Bruce Dickinson explains here. We're not actually advocating that anybody go and and sort of um, running around woods naked, you know, anointing themselves with whatever strange substances and worshipping things or anything. Mm -hmm. The uh, the track, The Number of the Beast, which uh, we decided to call the album that simply because it, we thought it was a very evocative title. It was, uh, it's a very pictorial, you know, colourful sort of title and it, you know, it's very dramatic and everything. So we thought we'd call the album that. It's not actually a theme that runs through the whole album, mm. although there are a couple of tracks which, from the titles, you could misunderstand. How would be thy name, yeah, children, children of the damned. damned and, right. Which are, in fact, nothing to do with um, sort of devil worship or anything. Um, but it's very easy to understand how people misunderstand that because, of course, there isn't a lyric sheet with the album, which is another little grouse of ours. Mm-hmm. There is in Europe, and uh, we've had a lot of criticism over here. And we're, uh, Have you had some of the right-wing moral majority uh, pressure groups out in the States after you or anything um, like Oh, not significantly. I mean, no. not, uh, we, we've had a few, had a few cranks on, on the phone, you know, uh-huh. uh, asking if they should burn our albums because they're demonic. And we sort of go, well, you know, burn what you like as long as you buy it first. Great stuff from Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden. I love that. You know, I was never a really big fan, but once I heard that interview... I have become more of a fan, that's for sure. It's amazing how many of those metal guys, when they appear to be taking the music very seriously, in in fact, had a great sense of humor about what they were doing. Absolutely. All right, as we wrap things up right now, here once again is the wisdom of Dave. I finally decided to write a song about a car. Always in the press, they say, oh, more of your traditional Van Halen, girls, cars, late Saturday nights. I thought, well, I never really did write a song about a car. Maybe it's about time. It's like on the last record of the record before when I wrote, uh, what was it, Mean Streets. 
And some uh, reporter said to me, Ah, Dave, what do you know about social commentary, you know, and uh, the changing cultures and the life in the streets and everything? What are, what are you really writing about here? I said, well, I'm not writing about social change or anything. I'm writing about robbing liquor stores. I think that's a much more concrete subject. I think you can deal with that a little more authoritatively, providing one reads the newspaper. All right. Oh, okay. Dave. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Once again, the wisdom of Dave, David Lee Roth, as we wrap up another edition of Famous Lost Words. Don't forget, you can get caught up with all past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app and on iTunes. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Christopher. Christopher. 